Luke 22, 7 through 20. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Caroline. Let's uh, pray and ask God's help as we think about the passage. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the gospel accounts of Jesus, his life, his ministry, his teaching. And uh, Lord, as we think about this passage, which is uh, formative for what we do here on a regular basis and what we'll do here today as we share in this meal, we pray that it would be instructive, encouraging, and point us uh, to all the riches that are ours through Jesus, for we ask it in his name. Amen. So uh, while various aspects of life, I think, have returned to something resembling life pre-COVID, I'm sure all of us are aware of certain things that haven't. And one of the things that I still miss here in Kennet is the opportunity to sit at the large farm table in the rear of Tallulah's table. As many of you know, there was a time where if you didn't find me in my study next door in the local house, the chances were you'd find me at my other study, which was that table in, in Tallulah's. And I know that that table frustrated some people, Mary Ellen probably knows this better than I do, but they'd be looking for a quiet one-to-one -one conversation with another person, and since the front tables at Tallulah's were taken, you'd end up having to sit beside other people that you didn't know at the farm table. But, but for me in this age of somewhat rampant individualism, I actually appreciated the encouragement to share a table with others. Sometimes there were conversations struck up with people you didn't know. Sometimes people would just do their own thing in silence or have a semi-private conversation. But the whole dynamic was different from most coffee shops by the simple fact that we were at a large table together. Well, each Sunday you and I uh, come to another place where there is a table this place, it's not set every Sunday. At this point, we're still only every other Sunday. 
But the fact that in a church sanctuary there's a table tells us something important about God and his people. This table is not the only important piece of furniture. Of course, the furniture of this pulpit uh, from which I now speak communicates that words are important to our gathering, that God speaks to us as we open up the Bible and the, uh, the preacher proclaims the gospel. There's also the important furniture of the baptismal font that uh, reminds us of the significance of the sacrament of baptism in our lives. But as we continue today in our series and a meal with Jesus, we're, we're thinking about this table. And in this series, we've been, we've been looking at, at some of the many instances recorded in Luke's gospel of places where Jesus eats with other people. We've noted that his eating and drinking with others is indeed a, a common occurrence in Luke's gospel, that in Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal or at a meal or coming from a meal. And that fits with what, how Jesus understood his own ministry to be, that it was, he did ministry and mission and community while eating and drinking. Luke 7, we saw that, that Jesus, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. That was his, his mode of operation. But today we come to the, perhaps the most famous of the meals, uh, any of the meals in any of the Gospels, most famous because Jesus instructed us as his church to continue to observe, to participate in this meal until he comes back again. And indeed, we'll be doing that a little later in the service. This meal, of course, is what we refer to as the Lord's Supper. It's interesting that if you read uh, theological studies on the Lord's Supper, most will use what Peter Lightheart calls a zoom lens uh, approach as they focus in on the bread and the wine and ask what happens or what doesn't happen to the elements in this meal. You'll have fancy theological words like transubstantiation, consubstantiation, the memorialist view, the Calvinist view is the four options for understanding what happens to the bread and the wine. These studies often will then also talk about the benefits of participating in this meal that it's brought to the individual, suggestions of how we can use that for our own spiritual growth. But if we pull the camera back and examine the Lord's Supper through a wide-angle lens rather than a, a zoom lens, we get a rather different picture. Rather than just focusing on the bread and the wine, we realize that there are people involved in this meal, and they're doing things. We don't just observe the elements. We pass them. We share them. We eat and we drink. Words are spoken as part of this meal. So that for a stranger walking into our building on a Sunday morning and looking and seeing a table set at the front, they would surmise that, that we have gathered together at least in part to celebrate something. And in that, they would be correct. But what I hope we'll see this morning is that it's also a meal that acts out for us the way things are meant to be. It's a meal of, a, of the world in miniature, as Peter Lightheart says in the quote that's in your bulletin this morning. And so we're going to look at Luke's account of the meal today to see that the Lord's Supper is a meal that draws on the past, it anticipates the future, and it forms, it shapes us in the present doing all those things, because it's a meal that acts out the way things are meant to be. It's a meal of the world in miniature. So let's think first of all about how the Lord's Supper is a meal that draws from the past. As, as you read through Luke 22, uh, you, it's not hard to see what meal 
Jesus and his disciples have gathered to uh, share in here. Uh, verse 1, which was before uh, the reading that Caroline read today. Verse 1, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Then where our reading began, verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Verses 14 to 15, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So Jesus and his disciples had gathered in an upper room to share this Passover meal. This was a meal that was celebrated once a year, which was to remember, to commemorate Jesus, or God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. God had commanded his people in Exodus 12 that at the time of God's ascending of the plague on the firstborn, that each subsequent year they were to celebrate his protection and his deliverance through the eating of this Passover meal. So each year this meal would be celebrated in families with the host interpreting each of the different foods that were part of the meal as it related to their deliverance from Egypt. And at the heart of the meal was the roasted lamb, which brought to mind the lamb's blood that had been applied to the doorposts, the lintels of their homes, uh, reminded them of the eating of the lamb in each household and of the angel of death who had passed over them because of the lamb's blood on their doors. And on this particular evening, in this particular upper room, Jesus hosts this Passover meal for his disciples. They've worked their way through the first part of the celebration. They've probably at this stage drunk the second of the four cups of wine that were part of the meal. That second cup introduced the main course. And then Jesus takes unleavened bread and the next cup and then drops the bombshell. Verses 19 to 20, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, I think it's hard for us to realize uh, the impact of what Jesus says here. Because here's this meal that was all about Yahweh, all about the God of Israel, all about the God who had rescued his people from slavery and death. And Jesus now takes the bread and the cup and he says, this is all about me. It's not a perfect analogy at all, but it would be a bit like at a wedding reception where all the focus is to be on the groom and the bride. And then the best man stands up for his speech and he begins by telling everybody that it's his birthday that day and just starts talking about himself all, and everyone's looking around going awkward and, and thinking, but this isn't appropriate at all. But that's, that's kind of what it almost feels like. And it would be totally inappropriate for Jesus to have drawn attention to himself in the Passover meal here, unless he's the rescuer himself, unless he's come to achieve and lead the true ultimate exodus. And that's exactly Jesus' point here. Jesus sort of takes the redemptive history door off its hinges and rehangs the door. He's saying this is the last Passover meal that needs to be celebrated. No one ever has to do this again because I'm instituting a new meal that draws on that past. So this meal draws on the past, but it also secondly anticipates the future. Look at verses 15 to 18. He said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus tells his disciples how much he's longed to eat this Passover meal with them, but but that he will not eat it again until the kingdom of God comes in all its fullness. So what's he referring to there? Let me read to you again Isaiah 25, verse 6, which I referenced in last week's sermon. Isaiah says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Isaiah looks forward to a day in the future when the feast to end all feasts will be eaten. And that's the meal that Jesus is is looking forward to here, but more than just looking forward to, because feasting was Jesus' favorite way to describe the kingdom that he'd inaugurated but not yet consummated. Jesus used the image of the feast more than any other to describe the reality of the kingdom, that this world will not end with a bang or a whimper, but with the laughter of a wedding feast. Revelation, some of you may recall, that it's the that the the end of history is described as a wedding supper of the Lamb. And as Jesus shared in this supper, he couldn't help but think towards that future reality, a future reality of a renewed creation, of cosmic peace, of shalom, of harmony between God and humanity and creation. As Jesus shared in this meal, he was explaining to his disciples that the Lord's Supper This meal here is the now aspect of that feast to come. It's a foretaste of a future celebration. As Jesus explains elsewhere in the Gospels, the bridegroom of this wedding supper has already come. It's him. And he offers the wedding feast now at this table. The feast we celebrate is is like a crumb or two falling from that table, but it's a true anticipation of, of that future feast. So this, this feast, this meal, is not just a picture. It's not just a visual sermon. It's, it's much more than that. It's the real thing in a partial, begun in a partial way. That at this table, we eat with God's people. We eat with the ascended Christ through the Spirit, as we will in the new creation. So the Lord's Supper is a meal that draws from the past, but it's also anticipating the future. But thirdly, and we'll spend the rest of our time on on this, the Lord's Supper is a meal that forms us. It shapes us in the present. Every time we eat and drink the Lord's Supper, we we play a role in, in a drama that portrays the way that life is meant to be. How does that work? Well, think with me through different aspects of this meal. First of all, not to state the obvious, but it's a meal. It's a meal where we eat and we drink. And in our eating and our drinking, at the most basic level, we are expressing our dependence on God, which is the way things are meant to be. As creatures, we have no life in, in ourselves. We have to take in fuel from outside to live. So every mouthful is a reminder that we're not self-sustaining. We depend upon God and his provision for life. And this meal, in some small way, reflects that. But at the same time in our eating and drinking, we recognize the unique place that God has given us in his creation. It reminds us that 
all the way back in Genesis, God had granted men and women stewardship over his creation, that we're to fill the earth, we're to subdue it, we're to wisely rule over every creature and plant. And so as we eat the Lord's Supper, we recognize both our dependence upon God for our sustenance, our provision, and our God-given authority over creation. That's the way things are meant to be. But secondly, the Lord's Supper depicts things as they're meant to be as we specifically eat bread and drink wine. The fact that we eat bread in this meal has significance on at least two levels. First of all, think about it on a a pragmatic level. Jesus could have instituted a, a ritual meal for us to share that used roasted grain or red meat, both of which were used in Old Testament feasts. However, he chose to signify his kingdom uh, here with, uh, signify his kingdom through a feast of bread. Now, granted, there's some continuity here between the food of the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper, but it's worth contemplating the fact that here is a food that Jesus used that does not occur naturally. Bread is a uniquely human food. As Samuel Johnson once observes, animals think and feel, but no beast is a cook. To invent bread and wine involved a complex set of discoveries and operations that transformed wheat and grapes from their natural state to something edible and drinkable. Why is that important? Because in the world that's meant to be, even in this meal, God has cre- reminds us that he's created us to be entrepreneurs and discoverers and engineers and farmers and craftsmen, that as we eat bread, we celebrate God's gifting of talents and abilities. But there's a theological significance to the bread in this meal as well. As we saw earlier, central to the Passover meal was the lamb, reminded the Jews that that. The only way the firstborn son in any family would be spared on that first Passover was by the application of blood from the lamb on the doorposts and lintels of their homes. Firstborn were spared in the homes where the sacrifice of a lamb had been made. But notice in our passage today that Luke makes no mention of this central part of the traditional Passover meal. In fact, none of the gospel writers mention a lamb on the table. And there's a reason for that, because at this meal, the true lamb was not on the table, he was at the table. That up to this point, every year of his life, Jesus had been present with his earthly family celebrating this meal, and one of those years, which year we do not know, Jesus came to understand that the lamb on the table was pointing forward to the death of another lamb, the lamb, and he was that lamb. That every Passover, Jesus was increasingly confronted with his own death. And now, as he celebrates this meal, his death is literally hours away. So that Jesus now turns the focus to the body and blood of the true lamb. Knowing that he's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he says to his disciples, this is my body given for you. The cup is is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. I'm going to die in your place. I've come as your substitute, and each time that you eat this bread, remember as you eat the bread, you're eating it because I'm the lamb who died to pay for your sins. But we don't just eat bread in this meal, we drink wine or a substitute for wine. And again, there's some clear continuity between the Passover meal 
and the Lord's Supper on, on this front. Gisela Kreglinger, in her book, The Spirituality of Wine, writes that to underline that continuity, the fourth century church father, John Chrysostom, would highlight to new communicants the analogy between the communion wine on the mouth of the believer and the blood of the lamb smeared on the Israelites' doorposts in Egypt at the Passover. That just as God passed over the Israelites because their door frames were marked with blood, so Christians are spared and saved because, as Chrysostom put it, the blood of the truth smeared of because of the blood of the truth smeared on the mouths of the faithful. That sounds very kind of earthy to us, and it's not really how modern people tend to think, but I think Chrysostom and his contemporaries had a profoundly integrated way of understanding human beings, knowing that embodied practices and experiences, including sense perception and mental image making and words, all work together powerfully when we're thinking and speaking of invisible spiritual truths that the parallel between the blood on the doorposts and the wine on our lips is a powerful reminder to us each time we celebrate this meal of what Jesus came to do. But then think for a moment about the wine itself and, and how it's part of this meal. Wine is a drink of celebration, not merely nutrition. If Jesus had wanted us to depict our relation to creation and to God and purely utilitarian terms, he could have used bread and water. But this, this bridegroom showed his cards early in his ministry when he went to a wedding feast and he turned water into wine. And here he inaugurates the new covenant meal as he tells us to drink the cup of wine in remembrance of him. We understand the significance of this instruction from Jesus better when we consider it against the background of a couple of Verses buried in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 10, verses 8 to 9. We read this, The Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. Drinking wine in the immediate presence of God in the Old Covenant was strictly forbidden. And at least part of the reason for that was that wine induces relaxation. It communicates that the, the work is, is done. And frankly, when the, when the priests of Israel went into the holy place in the tent of meeting, it was not a place to relax because the work was never done. If you remember in our series in Hebrews last year, Hebrews 10 told us that here was a place where day after day after day, every priest would stand and perform his religious duties again and again, offering the same sacrifices because those sacrifices could never finally take away sin. But here at this foretaste of the future banquet, Jesus says that wine is not only permitted, but in a sense required in God's presence. Because you see, Jesus has come as the, the true high priest, and he's about to shed his own blood once and for all, which would take away the, pay, the penalty for our sin forever. So that now we can relax. Now we rejoice because the work of salvation, the work of payment for our sins has been completed. And so Jesus invites his people to a feast of wine in the presence of God in his own presence, because this is the way things are meant to be. Thirdly, we eat this meal in community. Carolyn Steele is a British architect, a writer, university lecturer a number of years ago, 
Uh, she wrote a book called Hungry City. It was a wide-ranging exploration of all the intricate connections between human communities and land and food and cities and how food shapes human communities, societies. But at one point, she talks about the importance of meals, and she wrote this. More than half the meals we eat are eaten alone. The majority of those consumed on the hoof in front of the telly, she's British, that's television, in case you didn't know, or sitting at a desk, our lifestyles are increasingly fueled by food not structured around it, not least because of the enormous social changes that have taken place over the past century or so. But although most of our meals, or meal occasions, as the food industry insists on calling them, consist either of fast food or ready meals, there is one kind of occasion for which only one sort of meal will do. Whenever we have a really significant event to celebrate, a feast is still overwhelmingly the way we choose to do it. Tables may be shrinking and lifestyles speeding up, but nothing has yet replaced feasting as a celebratory mechanism." End quote. And she's right, isn't she? I mean, when we celebrate and there's food involved, we feast. And when we feast, we do it in community. You cannot feast in isolation. Feasting's a social event. We do it together. And as a community who do something together, we're not observers. We're participants. Jesus says, do this, not hear this. If the Lord's Supper just involved words, then we'd be mere hearers passively observing the drama of salvation at a distance. But the bread and the wine, they, they draw us in. This salvation becomes our salvation. As we each eat and drink, we make a public confession that we trust that the work of our salvation has been done in full by Jesus, that we're now part of his family along with the people with whom we share this meal because this is the way things are meant to be. So here's a meal that draws from the past, it anticipates the future, and it's shaping, it's forming us in the present. But there's one last way in which this meal depicts the way things are meant to be. Each time we share this meal together on Sundays, Jeremy or I will read words from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Paul quotes from Luke's account of this meal, and then he writes this, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six: For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now here's the question that many people have asked about this verse. What exactly does Paul mean here? I mean, how exactly do we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes? Is it in the, the actual breaking of the bread, or is it when I or Jeremy speak the words of institution? Well, look again what Paul says. He says, we proclaim the Lord's death whenever we eat the bread and drink the cup. It's when we look at this meal not through a, a zoom lens, but through a, a wide-angle lens and see it as a communal meal that we we see that what proclaims the Lord's death is our eating and drinking together and the way we do that. And in 1 Corinthians 11, that understanding fits the context because just before that verse, back in verse 20, here's what Paul had told the Corinthians. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. The fact that they weren't sharing the Lord's Supper had nothing to do with whether they were saying the right words or not, or whether they were getting the mechanics right with the bread and the cup. It was because they were a church of factions. It was because they were a church where people were acting selfishly towards one another. That the difference between the Lord's Supper and not the Lord's Supper 
lay in the way that people behave towards each other. And Paul was making the point that the Lord's death is proclaimed only when the church celebrates the meal correctly. That is, when we share the meal as a community of people who love one another well and demonstrate our unity that we have through Jesus. I think that's fascinating, that we proclaim the Lord's death in this meal in terms, basically, of how we're getting on together. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes by demonstrating the difference that his death and resurrection make to us as a church family. And in that sense, participating in the Lord's Supper is habit-forming. It's why, while many churches in in the Reformed tradition do the meal once a month, we do it at least twice a month. It's a drama in which we're participants, practicing in the sharing of this meal, the love and the unity that's to characterize us at all times. That through this meal, we're learning the habits of a, of a cross-centered life. Listen to how Tim Chester expresses this. He says, in a busy culture with people desperate to succeed, we practice in communion resting on the finished work of Christ. In a fragmented culture that is radically individualistic, we practice in communion belonging to one another. In a dissatisfied culture of constant striving, we practice in communion receiving this world with joy as a gift from God. In a narcissistic culture of self-fulfillment, we practice in communion joyous self-denial and service. And in a proud culture of self-promotion, we practice in communion humility and generosity. All these practices are habit-forming and so seep into the rest of our lives. It's a meal that draws from the past. It's a meal that anticipates the future, but it's a meal that is shaping and forming us in the present because here is the way things are meant to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your institution of this meal for us and your call to us to continue to share in this meal here until one day you return and usher in that great wedding feast, that wedding supper of the Lamb. We thank you that through this meal that you give us this great picture of what you have done for us past, present, and future and how you shape us through this meal. We pray now, Lord, that as we prepare to come to it in a few moments, that it would be a great encouragement to us in the eating and drinking of these elements today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.